Hello, and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm your host, Emily Gregg. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research in regenerative medicine. Good afternoon. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Amit Patel. Chief of Cardiac Surgery and Professor of Surgery at the University of Miami, Florida's Miller School of Medicine. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to start our discussion about talking about your education and training background, um, especially as a medical doctor. So you received your master's in immunophysiology from Youngstown, is that right? Correct. Okay. Um, And then you got your MD at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. So can you tell our audience um, about your training at those institutions? So I always knew I wanted to be a physician. Mm -hmm. And over time, I learned that ideally it was either going to be a physician who does surgery or become a mechanic Mm -hmm. because I like to fix things, see things happen. Mm -hmm. But over time, what I learned is just because you fix something doesn't mean it always works. Right. And that's what the unique ability of both my graduate degree Mm -hmm. and medical degree was it gave me exposure to a lot of biological approaches to things Mm -hmm. and true technical approaches to things. Right. And then how to actually blend them together. Okay. Um, And so then you started your surgery fellowships. Um, We know you did that at Baylor, and then you completed your um, cardiothoracic surgery fellowship with the University of Pittsburgh. So talk to me about what made you choose to go in that direction. So as I knew I wanted to do cardiothoracic surgery, the opportunities both at Baylor and Pittsburgh gave me a great variety of patients, types of different processes, mm-hmm. and actually just learning how to be a great surgeon, and along with that, still develop the ability and skill set to investigate further that balance between surgery and biology. Right. And we know that prior to your current position at the University of Miami, you were the Director of Clinical Regenerative Medicine and Tissue Engineering for the University of Utah School of Medicine. How did you make the journey from surgeon to regenerative medicine? So I really never made the journey from one to the other. They sort of always coexisted. And that was part of that balance of learning surgery and being able to practice and take care of patients Mm -hmm. and at the same time learning the patients that when you operate certain ones that did very well and certain Mm -hmm. ones that took a lot longer to heal so it was always applying that concept that you can technically fix something but if the biology doesn't support it then the technical part doesn't always work out and those were always things that are very difficult to explain Mm -hmm. that's where the regen medicine side which from my master's degree, so that's back in the 90s, that existed of mononuclear cells, progenitor cells. And so that's always been part of a parallel path independent Mm -hmm. of where I've been or where I've worked is how do you get the body to heal itself over and above what you technically do to it during surgery? Yeah, that reminds me of um, something that Dr. Atala likes to say a lot is that one of the hardest things or one of the hardest things he experienced as a surgeon was knowing that the device or you know whatever it is that you're doing to a patient is not necessarily the best answer. And so that's sort of what led him down the path of regenerative medicine. So it sounds like you sort of concur with that. Is that right? Do you agree? It is. That yeah. You're always trying to look at instead of just putting artificial material in, that is 
not always the best solution. Mm -hmm. It's a short-term solution and also a solution that when we don't have a lot of other options. Mm -hmm. So if you can make these processes more natural, more many people talk about biocompatibility, you know, my approach more is how about if you're bio-invisible? Mm. When you I can like make that. the next generation, not of implants, but just devices and things where the body doesn't even see them. So one is mm -hmm. to be compatible. If you're invisible, then you don't have the potential for infection, clotting, and other things. And that's a lot of our next generation approaches are taking that bio-invisible approach. I agree. I think that there's a, re I think, I really like your term of bio-invisible. I think that's really great. Your interests include uh, minimally invasive and hybrid techniques. Um, so for revascularization, heart valve reconstruction, and treatments for aneurysms, and that's just to name a few. So what is it about the human heart that piques your interest the most? Well, in the most basic sense, the human heart is a pump. It has a lot of electrical components, mechanical components, it has four valves. Mm -hmm. So it really drives, you know, blood, which the main purpose is oxygen to th throughout the body and then all the waste back to it. But the unique thing is it's truly three-dimensional and dynamic. Most other organs in the body are two-dimensional in the sense that, yes, they're 3D in their structure, but they function more at a metabolic level Whereas this is, you have metabolic, mechanical, and makes it truly dynamic. So when you look at problems of the heart, you have to look at it on all these levels. And in most cases, people have always looked at them more at a structural level. Mm -hmm. Do you have a valve that's bad? Do you have a blockage or things like that? And usually you come up with very short-term acute solutions that hopefully are durable and become long-term but they all involve devices and other things which don't always work well with the heart because they either reject them, they see them as foreign material, or they deteriorate over time. And so specifically for the heart, where you can come up with new concepts that have the ability to say, I can put a bio-invisible valve in there. Now we talk about that as in the future, but the future is that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. We've developed this approach and we're hoping here very soon to actually implant the first patient with a bio-invisible valve. Wow, that, that's really great. One of the things that you just brought up uh, that I kind of wanted to piggyback off of was devices. I, I, in my research uh, for our podcast today, I read that you um, have innovated uh, several devices. So can you talk about that experience, uh, sort of the entrepreneurship uh, way that your career has gone? No, and I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of bright people from a very young age. And mm -hmm. that has given me the ability to not only do regular school stuff, work and things like that, but also have a parallel world mm -hmm. where how do we take things and make them better, make them more cost efficient, work better, cause less pain for patients. And in the early days, this is still in medical school, I was able to work with engineers to come up with devices to help heart valve surgery, beating heart bypass surgery, but the devices themselves were very big and clunky, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So very low tech, but very functional. Right. But that gave me the introduction to a lot of people along the way who truly were entrepreneurs and visionaries that helped me define 
the way I look at not only patients, medical problems, but always different scenarios and come up with what are the ideal solutions. And the ideal solutions usually aren't the ones that are the most complex. Mm -hmm. It's usually defining them usually is more difficult. And once mm -hmm. you can define what's there, then it's always great. You could always find smart people who help you figure the rest out. The worst situation is where you try to figure all these things out yourself because most of the time you'll get it wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. So the reason that you're here today is you gave a presentation titled Bioinnovations in Academia, which focused on how to translate innovative ideas that are discovered in a collaborative academic environment. So can you tell our audience what that really means and what part a young scientist plays in that role? So translation to most people means you take something that was in a dish or on a bench and bedside. That's a very common term everyone uses. The problem with that is it's not reality for most things. And also the timelines are not realistic because most people don't realize that that usually takes 10 to 15 years. Right. And the goal of my talk today was really to say, can you define problems and take existing mechanisms and thought processes and improve on them with new technology, new biologics, and really put them together so you can go from a concept to patient in four years or less. Mm. Doesn't mean it's a fully approved product, but a lot of the problems that you see in translation, you're not going to know until you actually put it into a patient. Because for the people who do a lot of preclinical work, meaning it goes into animals and things like that, most of these animals were completely healthy before you tried to experiment on them. Right. So whether it's a drug, a device or something, the results you get from that are interesting, but they're not always reproducible. And that's why there's so many things that work in a dish or in an animal mm -hmm. that fail when they go to humans. Mm -hmm. So when you take these new approaches of whether people do disease in a dish or on a chip or those sort of things, those are good ideas of how do you take tissues or mimic real diseased or unsick, unhealthy patients mm -hmm. and test a lot of these things out before you put them into them. And if you can do this more as a parallel science mm -hmm. instead of serial, it actually becomes much more accelerated, but mm -hmm. it's efficient. Because mm -hmm. you're not always hoping that if one thing works, maybe I could do the next thing. Mm -hmm. In this way, you're doing a number of things at the same time, mm -hmm. so the way you manage them is very different, but you, along the way, identify what you and your team at your own place do well, mm -hmm. but then both locally, nationally, and globally, there's experts in so many other things that your team is not going to be able to be. Right. And instead of competing with those people, you bring them on board, right. not for everything, but for certain components. So whether it's they have better ways to do certain test assays, their ability to image, their ability to do certain animal testing, their ability to manufacture a product, mm -hmm. how do you put all these people together and put it in such a way that it's not only just the win-win for everyone, but everyone sees that if we can successfully translate this, it's very objective metrics for everyone, and you could then help get funding and other resources mm -hmm. that really help accelerate translation. And going off of that, you know, for most scientists and researchers, 
one goal, not the only goal, but one very important goal is to make it to clinical trials. Um, so, and you've been a part of that process. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about that process, where you find the bottlenecks are um, other than money. I think we all know that funding can be a large bottleneck in the process, but um, I'd like to hear your stories about what that's like. Well, it's funny you bring up money because I've been very fortunate just through the many different groups and people that I know that money it's not freely available but it is widely available but it is the key is you have to understand that the what the people who have the money what they're exactly looking for and usually what a straightforward scientist is trying to do and what the money people are doing to have a huge disconnect and they both want to do similar things in the end but it's a matter of how they get there mm -hmm. and if you can better articulate to the money people what you're trying to do and make very defined timelines. And the thing is, a lot of this, no one's taught in medical school or undergrad or anything what the other side is looking for. And so if you don't know what they're looking for, how do you know what to do? And so whatever most people do doesn't always work or it doesn't seem appealing. Right. Because what may seem great to a scientist seems so far-fetched to the money people. And so the key is actually defining what your goal is, which is if it's to treat a patient, mm -hmm. but then very objectively saying almost on a week-by-week -week basis, it's almost like imagine if you had to get a report card every week instead of once a semester or quarterly reports or things like that. How would you change how you work and how you actually mm -hmm. can be goal-oriented? Because then you actually do a lot more risk mitigation by mm -hmm. having weekly goals instead of these long-term things. Because if you have to wait quarterly to find out if something's working or not, there's a lot of time, money, and resources that have gone into it. And if it doesn't work, everyone looks at, well, what could we have done better? Or what could we have used these resources that might have worked better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so by having this approach of parallel science with weekly deadlines, mm -hmm. it helps define things better. It does put pressure on people who aren't used to that sort of little bit more go, go, go. It's not you're always trying to do report cards every week. The report card is just the natural part of the process that if things are working, so the report card doesn't always have to be great. It mm -hmm. isn't that, oh, hey, everything we talked about, it all works. Science is great. Sometimes it's better to know what didn't work early mm -hmm. so that way you don't keep funding things and doing things that didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Or if you reach a bottleneck in a week, then you're like, I think we need to talk to someone outside of our group who might be able to help explain this. So a lot of times you figure out the problems and bottlenecks much earlier in this sort of approach, but then it also helps you better define and categorize what are your needs, not only for money, but resources and for clinical translation that I want to treat a patient here are the things I need to do to get there in the next year, next two years. Because when you get to the point of getting your FDA clearance for this IND to say, now I'm allowed to treat a patient, mm -hmm. that's a whole different skill set that's required of going through the IRBs and all the other three-letter regulatory groups, having the right team in place to do the appropriate paperwork. Because sometimes the easiest thing for many of these projects is actually doing the treatment, especially when some of these are IV-based therapies. You're a lot, 
that's not a lot of hard work that went into it. Mm -hmm. But all the surrounding work that's regulatory-wise, making sure the patients are safe, collecting that data, because it's great if the patient looks safe, but if you don't collect the data at the appropriate times, document that, then when something goes wrong, you don't know why it went wrong mm -hmm. or reproducibility of that data. So the quality of your data is so important. So if you don't have the right research coordinators, management, all these sort of things as part of the clinical team, then the likeliness that clinician or that trial is going to fail is very high. Because even when you have great therapies, how do you get the word out to patients that this is possibly available to them? Because mm -hmm. they're not always in the same circles, listening to the same things or seeing the same things that the physicians and the coordinators are. So how do you actually do clinical trials outreach to get patients in? It's not because you're trying to improve your enrollment. You're like, if patients have a disease and they've maximized their options, then you want to see, can they benefit from one of your regen therapies or novel therapies that are out there? And it's not to replace standard of care. Mm. It's usually to augment or do over and above what standard of care currently does. And that's yeah. why a lot of people miss that point. Most regenerative therapies are not there to just truly replace a pill or something like that. It's basically to provide a quality of life that's significantly better than what the patients have with existing therapies. It doesn't replace them. It makes the thing, their life better. I think that's a really great point, especially for regenerative medicine, because I think the number one question that we get is, um, will this save people's lives? And I think our response is always, it will improve their quality of life. Um, so I think that's a really great point to drive home. I also wanted to make a point where you talked about quality of data. I know here at W Firm we do lab notebook training on a regular basis, so we really try to drive home. So I think that that was a really great point, especially for young scientists, that the quality of data really does make a big difference, especially whenever you get to the clinical trial part of it. It's a huge thing because anyone can have something work once. Mm -hmm. The problem is if it's not reproducible, even at the early stages, mm -hmm. then it usually doesn't warrant going much further because that means there is some fundamental flaw mm -hmm. you just haven't identified it yet so right. independent validation is always important before you translate too far yes great and i kind of wanted to follow up on that a little bit um what do you think or how can how can regenerative medicine specifically accelerate its timeline to clinical trials, in your opinion? Um, do you have any ideas on what regenerative medicine as a field can do to um, get from the bench to the bedside a little bit faster? There's been many great approaches, and I think you asked this question because most of them have failed. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't be talking about it. We would be, right. we'd be talking about all these FDA-approved <laughs> therapies that have happened over the past 15 right. years. Right. And the problem is not a lacking of great ideas. Most of it is execution. And the concepts of how the therapies should be done, all of those things, there's a lot of great scientists and clinical translation people involved. A lot of times where regen therapy fails, and everyone talks about it, is the expectations are unrealistic because no one's really defined them well. So even when you're treating heart patients, 
you're not magically growing heart tissue with most of these first-generation therapies, but if the first-generation therapies didn't exist, it wouldn't allow the true tissue engineering approaches to even be developed because a lot of the things we figured out early on in translation have helped solidify and help increase the knowledge base to do next-generation therapies. So when we look at a lot of regen approaches, we seem to forget what is the end patient population that you're trying to treat mm -hmm. and defining that incredibly well. Because mm -hmm. if you take just cardiac patients, you're like, well, heart patients, did they just have a heart attack? Did they already have stents? Did they have bypass? Did they have tissue that's alive? Is it dead? Is it inflammation? Is it electrical? So you're like, well, that's too many things. The problem is many people just take the same regen therapy, whether it's a cell or other approach, and apply it to all of those patients. And then when it doesn't work, everyone's like, the therapy failed. Mm -hmm. Therapy didn't fail. You didn't define the population who could most benefit from it. And then, even when you define the population, you need to define what is success. So in end-stage heart failure, it should be at one year, are they alive or dead? Pretty binary. <laughs> mm -hmm. Two, how many times did they get readmitted to the hospital for heart failure issues? And did they have to have other interventions related to their heart? If you could reduce any one of those or all three, that'd be wonderful. With mm -hmm. the, now, And it wouldn't matter, did I grow an extra blood vessel? Did I improve their ejection fraction, which many people like? That's doesn't become as relevant if you can make a clinical impact that's very reproducible on them. The problem is that's not how most of these therapies have worked. Mm. People hope they magically inject something, patients just start walking again, they can walk a hundred miles. So it's sort of the reality of defining the patient, what the real metrics of success are, and then taking the biologic from there. Because there's so many different regions, cells, genes, combo approaches. So are you trying to grow blood vessels? Are you trying to decrease inflammation? Are you trying to decrease scar? Are you trying to improve the contractility or squeezing of the heart? Mm -hmm. So, and all of these tools exist, mm -hmm. but if you don't explain them and that's how you design these clinical trials, that's why we have so many trials that have failed. These concepts that you and I are talking about sound very simple and straightforward. And it's not that this is magical thought. What it is is, it's just a very structured approach. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is most of this structured approach has been lost in the hype of these miracle therapies and miracle cures, mm -hmm. and which is just providing patients unrealistic expectations. It's not that the therapies fail, because I have many patients over the years that have actually benefited from regen therapies that we've done through US FDA approved clinical trials. I have patients that have had four different rounds in different trials, all following the book. But it was because we defined what their problem was mm -hmm. and we set the expectations. It doesn't mean it works all the time, mm -hmm. but majority of our patients do benefit from these therapies. I think a buzzword right now that we hear a lot is precision medicine. What does that word or term mean to you? Precision medicine, some people take it further and call it personalized medicine. It is a great buzzword, but if you're providing great health care, you are treating each individual patient one at a time, which is personalized. I think the newer concept is, can you get molecular or biomarkers from a patient 
that actually help you treat more patients efficiently. That way before you give a patient an antibiotic or a cardiac medication, you know based on their gene profile or some other component of their insides that say, this person's not gonna likely respond mm -hmm. to this, so we shouldn't give it to them because mm -hmm. it either won't respond or they'll only see side effects. And we already see that being used, so sometimes with blood thinner, so mm. uh, a P2Y12 inhibitor, it's a gene polymorphism for that we see on platelets. So patients who get these new drug-eluting stents, mm -hmm. you're put on a blood thinner, mm -hmm. Plavix or Effient or many of these. The problem is up to 25% of the patients in the U.S. don't respond to those drugs. But unless you really? do the test, you wouldn't know. Hmm. So they would think, you know, patient takes the drug, their stent clots off, they go into the ER, their doctor says, oh, this patient must not have been compliant. And that's mm. why. And the patient like, I've taken this drug every day since you told me to. And it's because they were never checked. They didn't know about it. So those sort of tests that allow precision medicine make sense because it potentially decreases side effects of drugs, mm -hmm. but it also helps you define when a drug may actually help a patient. Mm -hmm. We see that in some of the cancer therapies that we're working on to decrease the number of blood vessels or starve tumors. We actually look at their HLA or their gene profile, mm -hmm. and on some of the biologics, now we've identified which gene profiles respond better to certain cell-based therapies. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, let's give it to everyone with a specific type of cancer, it's, okay, let's look at everyone who has the type of cancer who also has this gene profile. So now we know there's a 90% chance that this cell-based approach will help as opposed to if we just gave it to all comers, it might be only 50% mm -hmm. and you deal with more off-target effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, I think that does it for us today. Um, do you have any final messages for our audience? I think our next generation of therapies, be it regenerative therapies, be it biologicals, genes, or even devices as there's now regenerative medicine mm -hmm. or regenerative devices, mm -hmm. The, the key is that there's a lot of great science. What we've had difficulty doing is translating it into patients who are going to receive the most benefit. And I think as we have more and more clinicians understand the patients who may benefit the most from our current generation of therapies, that will help us develop our next generation therapies that may be more widely applicable to a greater population. Wow, I think that makes great sense. I think that's a great message for everybody. I just want to thank you again for stopping by and talking with us well, today. Thank you again today. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.